0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. This week I'm very, very, very pleased to say we have Dara Anjaria on the show, and we'll be talking about her really interesting book, Curzon's India, Networks of Colonial Governance, 1899 to 1905. I was very pleased to have the opportunity Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host, Each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. This week I'm very, very, very pleased to say we have Dara Anjaria on the show, and we'll be talking about her really interesting book, Curzon's India, Networks of Colonial Governance, 1899 to 1905, I was very pleased to have the opportunity to read this book, not only because I know Dara from uh, her being a host on the network. She's one of our hosts. She hosts new books in South Asian Studies, but also because it gave me the opportunity to learn something about, again, I don't really know what to call it, British India? Is that what people call it? To learn about the history of the uh, British Empire in India. I knew a little about Curzon, but I knew nothing about how Actually, the British, and there weren't very many of them, ruled what is basically a continent. And Dara does a terrific job of telling us how that happened. So, Dara, let me um, welcome you to the show. Thank you. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay,
1: sure. Okay, well, um, as you probably all picked up by now, um, I'm a historian of the British Empire. And um, maybe this starts from, you know, when I grew up in Bombay. And, uh, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, that was still a very post-colonial society. So I'd be, you know, just walking down the food paths and we'd have all these old bookstalls, you know, people recycling their stuff. And you pick up all these colonial memoirs. And I think I just fell in love. And, um, well, I read history at the University of Melbourne. And then I came to England and being an Anglophile, coming to England was like coming home. So I came to England for my Ph.D. and um, I specialized in imperial British history. And uh, this book is actually, you know, it's derived from my Ph.D. thesis, which looked at um, Curzon in India and his relationship with the different components of the British government of India. And um, since then, I've been an independent researcher. And I'm currently a visiting fellow at the University of London's uh, Institute of Historical Research, and that's
0: it. Okay, well, that's a lot. Um, I've always I've known you for uh, some time. I've always wanted to ask you about this. In all our correspondence, and you just said it again. You said uh, Bombay, and is the name of it Mumbai? I, I don't know. I mean, does this mean something? Can you call it both? Or
1: oh yeah, I think it's uh, it's probably a very political issue and there are still riots over it in you know in the place uh, <laughs> from time to time but the idea is that Bombay was originally a Portuguese port which was given over to the British as part of Catherine of Braganza's story in 1661 and uh, it's just from the Portuguese Bomba here which is supposed to mean Good Bay. Now the thing is that in the local language is Marathi it was called Mumbai um, except that You know, one version is that it really took off as a big city, you know, once it was, you know, once the British took over these islands, they started reclaiming land. And so it just became known as Bombay, which is obviously a corruption of the original Portuguese word. And in 1995 or 1996, um, a few local parties said that you need to use the indigenous word and the name was officially changed. (laughs) Now, the thing is, in Indian languages, it was always, you know, called Mumbai, you know, Mumbai in Hindi, but in English, you would just say Bombay. So the thing is now, if you say Bombay, you know, it's more like making a political statement saying you are standing for something that's more assimilative, you know. But sometimes beyond that, I mean, I might say Bombay if it feels comfortable. I might say Mumbai if it's comfortable. So as far as I'm concerned, it's just, you know, whatever feels right at the moment. Being <laughs> a colonial historian, I might tend to use Bombay more because it's a more period term. And, you know, that's what was called, you know, during my well, area of specialization. I see, I
0: see. Well, thanks very much for that. Could you tell us why you wrote this book? Why, Curzon, why this period?
1: Um, That's a very, you know, interesting question. And it's something that I actually have been wanting to talk about for a long time.
0: Now's your opportunity. Yeah. All right. I can't wait. Go.
1: (laughs) One idea was to actually, you know, dispel a lot of um, what I saw as myths that i grown up around, the historiography of empire. So, for instance, look, as I said, I grew up in India and I went to a state-run school and obviously our textbooks were, you know, very nationalistic, very post-colonial. So, you know, it was like you were fed a fairly negative view of empire and especially of, you know, people people like us, and for instance, because, you know, there was this thing called the you know, the administrative redistribution of Bengal, and which actually foreshadowed the partition of India. So it's it's something that's understandably not very popular in modern India. So, and I just wanted to see if there was more to Curzon than, you know, just this this one narrative. And the other thing was that, specifically talking about Curzon, you know, and, you know, maybe other Viceroy as well, you know, the Viceroy was kind of representative of the government. So a lot of like work tended to be you know, centered around the viceroyers and had about 10 biographers. The thing is that a lot of them didn't really go very deep because, you know, many of them were official biographies. Many of them were written by, you know, people who lived at the same time. So they had their own ideological reasons. And the third thing was that I wanted to talk about, you know, the private papers in the British Library. And I think what happened is that there was this perception that you need to move to a new kind of history of a subcontinent, you know, and not just follow the old empirical model because there's nothing to say. You know, the sources were like, they have been around for years, you know, more than a hundred years, 150 years. But my logic is that I think the sources have been selectively used. So I just wanted to see if there was, you know, more to the same sources, you know, actually stuff that would disprove what had been said earlier. So, that's why I chose Curzon because he was such, you know, a highly polarizing figure, you know, in his own lifetime and you know even afterwards. I mean, even now. So that's how this book came about. And then there was also the idea that you know when you talk about the British government in India, it's always presented as you know this homogeneous entity, you know, this functioning in you know without any internal differences. And sometimes it was as if it was always colluding with London, you know. And I think what I wanted to show and what came up like most significantly through Curzon's time in government was that there were a lot of internal dissensions within the government of India. They didn't always agree with the government in London. And, you know, there's just the idea that the empire was very hierarchical. You know, you obey what the person above you tells you to do. But the point is that wasn't always the case in practice. And so I just wanted to highlight that, how people managed to negotiate their way through the administrative and governmental structure. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, That's a very good answer. Let let me take you back to something you said. Uh, And this is a a bit of a digression, but I I bet our listeners would be interested in it. Uh, You mentioned that you went to school, obviously, in India, public schools in India. Uh, What do you read in textbooks in public school about... Uh, this period, about English imperialism or this period of the Viceroyalty? What what is does what is the average, I guess, well-educated Indian kid learn?
1: Well, uh, first of all, I would, I went to school in the 90s and every Indian state has its own like, educational board. So what you read, you know, would depend on what stage okay. you... But broadly, they were all the same, you know. And that obviously it was negative because of the Republic that's found founded on the negation of empire, we couldn't very well go about singing their praises. <laughs> so the idea was, yeah, okay, the British came and oppressed us. And then I think, you know, for about three out of six years in secondary school, we had to talk about the Indian independence struggle. That's all we learned. So, you know, you start from 1857. You know, that's when um, there's, a, there's a sort of uprising against, you know, the British, the Sepoy Mutiny, as it's commonly called. And it's, not, it's called the First War of Independence in Indian school textbooks, or at least it used to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then, you know, you just talk about Gandhi, you talk about Nehru, you know, you talk about Jinnah, you talk about separatism, and I think it's very much linked to the aims of the modern Indian nation state, you know, secularism, you know, unity, you know. It's a, a very centralized structure. All in all, you don't really get anything positive about, you know, the British Empire. And that's something that... That was interesting because, you know, I was picking up all these old books, these colonial memoirs of the streets of Bombay. And, you know, these were written by people who would come out to India to work in the Indian civil service, service, you know, and some of them for a long time. And what struck me was, you know, it wasn't the arrogance of empire. It was actually the humility. So you got somebody, you know, he's 25, he comes out, he comes out straight from England. He's never been anywhere in his life before. Well, maybe to Europe. And then, you know, you're... You're in this strange country, you don't speak the language, you know, you're maybe the only person of your ethnicity. you know, within like, I don't know, a thousand square kilometers, surrounded by tigers ready to eat you. <laughs> uh, you know, and they just keep on saying, we want to do the best we can, you know. And uh, we are here in India and, you know, we want to help the, Well, the natives, that's the term they used. And, you know, so it seemed very much at odds with the narrative that I was getting in those, you know,
0: school (laughs) textbooks. I mean, in a a very vaguely similar way, uh, in American textbooks, you learn about the British, who are uniformly cast as our oppressors, and our oppressors ruled by a crazy king, even. So George was crazy, and there were these oppressors, and all of them, if you read the textbooks, wore red coats. (laughs) It's absurd. Every one of them wore red coats, but that's what, you know, I came away from, you know, and the British were bad, and you know, the people that fought for independence were good, and and that was pretty much it. Let's go on to the 19th century. Um, so, I see what you mean. So, um, can you tell us what people, what the received views, so to say, what historians before yourself said about Curzon?
1: Well, they mostly had negative things to say. Well, <laughs> um, no, seriously, um, Curzon, as I said, had about nine or ten biographers. I think um, some of them were actually people who defended him you know when he got into political trouble and i think that is one of the first um, there was somebody called law at fraser in 1911 that was pretty much a hagiography mm-hmm. and then you had a lot of people he'd fallen out with you know and i some of i think some of his uh, family and um, some of his political rivals and they had their memoirs and obviously there was an unflattering picture of him you know, in the sense that not they didn't object to them, but in those cases they would actually object to his methods. Because remember, these were people who were competing with cousins for power. You know, Arthur Godley, George Hamilton, Arthur Balfour, the Prime Minister, and so you know, in those days they weren't going to dispute that the Empire was a good thing, or <laughs> so they would be more like okay he. He isn't sufficient, you know, receptive to orders from London. He wants to do things his own way. And then, you know, in post-colonial times, you actually see a shift um, because you have a lot of you have some Indian historians, and obviously they are unanimously, you know, negative about him because of this whole redistribution in Bengal, the 1905 one, not the 1947 one, which they would see as you know a precursor to the 1947 partition. And then you do have a couple of very good biographies. I think by Kenneth Rose and he's an English social historian and one by David Dilks. And I think that that's very empirical. So there's one by Escobar. And again, those were in the late 60s, early 70s. So and I think there's an effort to understand uh, what went on with Curzon. But really, it's more just, you know, a mining of um, the Curzon papers in the British Library.
0: (laughs) So... so this is a sort of two-part question. Um, First of all, tell us what the vice-royalty was, uh, Mm -hmm. because I I knew it existed, but, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, I I sort of know what a prime minister is, but we don't have them in the United States. (laughs) Um, So tell us what the vice-royalty was, and then we'll talk about how Curzon was appointed to it. Okay?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, But basically... Um, British India, as you know, it didn't really, you know, it it wasn't like the British came in from any one port and then they spread out across India. I mean, they had three bases: Bengal, Bombay, and Madras. And so, what happened was that Bengal was obviously their first um, and most well, not really the first, actually, but it developed into one of the most important term sites, and then they spread outwards from Bengal. And uh, around the eighteen thirties, um, the person in charge of Bengal, the Governor General of Bengal, he was made re- responsible for you know the governance of what was all of British India then, and the people who were in charge of the Bombay region and the Madras region were you know made subordinate to him, and. Uh, at this point, obviously, you know, the crown didn't have direct responsibility for India. It was still the East India Company. Mm-hmm. After the 1857 World Rebellion uprising, whatever you want to call it, um, the crown took over charge from the East India Company. And this person, the you know, the person in charge of India was designated the viceroy of India. Basically, the viceroy was the representative of the crown in India. So, you know, he was obviously... Well, technically, he was just answerable to the monarch. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of lobbying going on and, you know, he would obviously have to work very closely with the British government and, in effect, like, mm-hmm. dictated his, um, well, appointment. And, you know, there were people who resigned when they didn't agree with what the government said or when they fell out with them, like cousin. So, in effect, he was responsible for British India.
0: Mm-hmm. And... And so, how how, how did Curzon? Uh, well, tell us a little about Curzon's life and how he ended up in this position. Did he want to end up in this position? I mean, yeah, what kind of person was he?
1: I think, you know, the, the Viceroyalty of India was, according to him, the only thing he ever wanted in his life.
0: <laughs> Lucky man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it was um, a pretty grand post. Um, don't mind you, you didn't get much money out of it. You had to marry well or be independently wealthy to be able to take it up. And he made sure he married well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the point is, see he was born, obviously, in the Midlands, in Derby. And he was basically of Norman descent, obviously, when Eton in Oxford. And, you know, he said he heard, like, the former law member of the government of India, called James Stephens, you know, deliver a lecture at Oxford and, you know, He said, I So that's when he realized that the Indian empire existed. And he he was a teenager at the point. And then, and I think he said like the whole of his life was actually devoted to, you know, getting the Indian Viceroyalty. So basically he graduates and then he actually goes traveling. He traveled extensively across Central Asia, across Southeast Asia, across India. And he wrote a lot about this across Persia. So I think in the decade before, He made a speech for the Vice-Royalty, I mean, he actually produced a number of political tracks and, you know, they're pretty good even today, you know, they're very readable, they've got very sound observations. And then he starts, you know, lobbying. The thing is that, you know, at that point, obviously, the Russian Empire was advancing down from Central Asia, and he was obviously of the view that, you know, it was a threat to the security of British India. And this wasn't really a view shared by a lot of people in London, you know. And we still don't know, you know, whether they actually wanted to invade India or whether the idea was just to keep the British occupied in India while they, you know, sort of expanded in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, he makes a switch. And in 1898, he was appointed to the Viceroyalty. He said he wanted to do it, you know, before he turned 40 because it was a task that required a lot of energy. So I think he was one of the youngest viceroys of India. And um he came out and I think he took two terms because you know the Vice Speaker term was normally a five year one and during that time, you know, you couldn't you couldn't normally leave India or at least Indian territory. You had to be there all the time. And but I think he managed to secure some leave but then he came back for a second term and he resigned about, you know he resigned a few months into his second term. <laughs>
0: so so I guess I was going to ask, uh, was it typical to appoint someone who was an Eastern expert? Because I think he would have been considered an Eastern expert.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is that it should have been very desirable, and this very interesting because in the days of, you know, the East India Company, if you were, you know, to become the governor general of India, you would normally rise to the ranks of the company's administrative structure. You know, I think John Lawrence was one of them. But that, you know, actually kind of ended once the – Um, the crown took over India. And you might have people who had, you know, other colonial experience. Maybe they have been governors in Canada, in Australia, or they might just, you know, have been, you know, people who had some experience of local government in Britain or nothing at all, you know, and then they come out to India. But no, it was actually not difficult to appoint an Eastern expert. And Curzon said, you know, you need an Eastern expert because, you know, it's like... The government of India, ultimately, it was, you know, there were 300 million people, it was a big place, and in effect, it was like, you know, an independent entity. And so it had to deal with all these eastern problems because the government of India was also responsible for relations, you know, with the Gulf, with Southeast Asia. So something they had to deal with on a daily basis. So it was unusual, and I think, you know, London, they didn't really want to do it, but I think he made them do it.
0: Now, how did you make them do it?
1: Just by lobbying, you know, because from the 1880s onward, he he starts traveling, he starts publishing, and at the same time, he's actually writing letters, you know, to the Secretary of State, to the India office, saying, I I need the Vice Royalty, and he said, and that's actually what he does. And and I think it was just through a lot of persistence, a lot of badgering, and, you know, he gets what he wants at the end.
0: Had he ever run anything before he got it? See what I'm saying? It's like, had he ever, did he have any sort of governmental or administrative experience?
1: Well, he was an MP, uh-huh. so in that sense, he did have administrative experience. Yes, he worked a little bit at, you know, the, you know, foreign office.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So in that sense, he did have experience, and he was like, you know, widely taken to be. And Eastern expert. So mm-hmm. there were no doubts as to his qualifications for the job. And the only concern was that he was far too enthusiastic and he might, like, actually cause, you know, a diplomatic incident on India's Northwest Frontier.
0: Mm-hmm. So here we come to the nub of it. What did he want to do there? Mm-hmm. Did he come with an agenda?
1: Well, yes. I mean, uh, I think one thing he came, the idea was to, He said that British India, you know, they didn't really have a coherent foreign policy. So, and I think that he had a list of reforms and I think the frontier was the biggest one because the frontier, when you talk about the North West frontier, you're actually talking about what is now the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. Mm -hmm. And in those days, you know, there were two schools of thought. One school of thought was that, you know, you have British troops up to a point and then, you know, that's it. Beyond that point, you don't go. The other idea was that, you know, you have some troops out like, you know, in outposts and you know, then you know, even that's how you negotiate with the tribals. Because between the border and Afghanistan there was like this pretty much ungoverned zone because, you know, I mean obviously the authority of the government Kabul even then it didn't really extend all the way. So and I think what Curzon did was, you know, actually He'd been to Kabul before he became Viceroy, he was able to negotiate with Dame, he was able to like reform the frontier administration so that by the end of, you know, his Viceroyalty, I mean, you had a, you know, you had a policy, like you had the stone where the tribesmen were responsible and then you had the the string of forts along, you know, where British India ended. So, where you could actually keep an eye on what is going on. And that's a policy that worked until 1919, the Third Anglo Afghan War. So, the frontier did remain peaceful for about 20 years. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, this is Waziristan, isn't it, we're talking about? Hmm? Waziristan, that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's the name of it. The reason I know this is because it's in the news in America all the time. I wish it weren't in the news all the time, but it is in the news. Even the notion of the tribal zone—we we know what that is now in the United States, because uh, we go there apparently. Uh, so, um, what other parts of his? I know that he uh, initiated a lot of legislation, didn't he? He initiated a lot of legislation.
1: Um, le- yeah, the idea was actually to cut down, but he did a lot of like you know tinkering around, and I think there was the, I think the major. The other thing was obviously the partition of Bengal. Big province, 80 million people actually comprise, you know, the modern-day Indian states of Bengal, then Bangladesh, Assam, Bihar, and orissa So the idea is you restructure it. Unfortunately, the way it was restructured, you know, you ended up having an eastern side with a Muslim majority and a western side with a Hindu majority. And obviously, you know, Indian nationalists kind of seized upon that. And, um, you know, that's... But the thing is, it was also an administrative measure. And once in, the plan actually wasn't his, you know, it had been uh, mooted by a previous viceroy, Lord Litton, in the 1870s. So I think Curzon actually he was very effective at mobilizing Indian public opinion when he wanted something, you know. One, that's Another reason I did the book, because you have a lot of people who say that he didn't really listen to local opinion, you know, to Indian you know, opinion. But in the case of the redistribution of territory in Bengal, he goes to Dhaka, which would have become the capital of the new province and he says okay like this you know this is going to help you guys because this is going to be a provincial capital now you'll have you know new buildings a new university things like that and the local grandees actually get up there and back him you know so that counters the people who don't want the partition so to speak the people in Calcutta so that was the other big thing
0: yeah. yeah, well, you're, you're the the sort of brunt of your book, the, one of the theses of your book is, is, is precisely about how he relates to other people and to groups of people. And I, I, if I read correctly, contrary to what has been said uh, prior to your book, if, that you say that he was actually quite effective at lobbying people and reaching out to people and uh, stating his position and getting what he wanted done. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, yeah, Sure. I think that's something that comes across uh, in many ways, as in the Bengal thing that I just mentioned. And you had a similar case in the case of Punjab, the Land Alienation Act, which basically proved that, you know, land transfers. And again, you had a lot of people who said this is a matter that concerns the Indians, you know, and you have a committee and, you know... The company doesn't really have any Indians on it. So they produce somebody who actually was opposed to the bill and goes and finds this guy who actually supports the bill. So he uses him as the Indian member. And, you know, the the bill was actually pushed through and I believe it still stands today, you know, obviously in a very modified form. And then again, when you're talking about co-opting people, you know, you're looking at um, the guy who came out as the governor of um, Madras, Arthur Amtel, and, uh, well, Arthur Russell, Lord Amtel. And, you know, Curzon doesn't like him initially, you know, because first of all, as I said, historically, the province, the presidencies of Bombay and Madras, they had a lot of independence, you know, they, they never liked being subordinate to calcutta And so this guy comes out and he does things his own way. And cousin had, had problems with previous governors, but then he gets along very well with him because he does see that administratively, you know, there's nothing to fault with this person. And he actually appoints him, you know, as his um, locum when he goes to England on leave. And then when he gets into this um, issue with the government over uh, Lord Kitchener, you know, Amtel ends up supporting him. And to uh, I mean, to the extent that the idea the home government was that, you know, if, um, you know, we get cousin to resign because he's not really doing what we want him to and we get Amtil, you know, as Viceroy instead. And, you know, Amtil says, no, you know, that he is prepared to back cousin and not the home government, even though, you know, it would cost him succession to the viceroyalty, and, and that's what happens. And I think this was, it, it, it was a very slow process because initially, you know, there's a lot of acrimony and, you know, cousin didn't even want Amtil to be his temporary replacement. But then he sees that he's actually like doing a good job you know as the as locum and that's when he wants him, so I think the the thing with Curzon was that if he did a good job, he was likely to get along very well with you
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, um if you didn't, you know that's probably the end of things.
0: Yeah, you yeah. mentioned Kitchener, I think that's somebody that many people who listen to this podcast they'll recognize that name. Explain actually Kitchener's role at this time and Curzon's relation with him because there is something in the historiography called the Kitchener affair
1: yeah that actually messed up the viceroyalty that actually ended it and the pretty much cousins uh, uh, well it pretty much finished cousins political career you could say um one of cousins ideas was to reform the indian army you know it was you know it was pretty much it was on the organizational structure so he gets Kitchener out because Kitchener was one of the leading generals you know Kitchener, Khartoum you know so yep. he was pretty much a war hero and he wants him out here and you know people say don't bring him out because he didn't really have a good reputation for interpersonal relations or getting along with people but Kirsten says he didn't care you know as long as he does the job well so he brought him out now the problem is that commander-in-chief of India, which is what Kitchener came out as. He wasn't on the Viceroy's Council. The military member of the Viceroy's Council was. So in effect, you had two people, you know, who were in charge of the Indian army, and um, Kitchener objected to that. And Curzon objected to Kitchener objecting. And then you have to remember that by this point, obviously, the home government would get involved. And um, for Curzon, you know, They already had their apprehension about Curzon because they thought he was taken to independent line of foreign policy on internal administration, you know. And Kitchener was this war hero who could do no wrong. So when you know the background politics starts, and Kitchener was a lot more effective at that than Curzon, and you know he suggested some compromises, and um, you know Curzon didn't accept them, and. So basically there's a lot of lobbying going on and in the middle of all this person just resigned, you know, mainly because he said like, I can't like, um, you know, agree to the proposals that are being put forward. You know, the idea is that the person who sat on the Viceroy's Council you know, to advise on military matters, his role would be like pretty much chopped off and would just be the commander-in-chief who would have completely over the Indian army. And Kersin didn't want this because he thought a too independent army wouldn't really be in the interest of India. Mm -hmm. You know, the Mm -hmm. idea was that the army should be subordinate to the civilian government. And that had always been, you know... Very characteristic of the Indian army. It, it still is today. So, and that's actually what he resigned over, not the logistics of, you know, who should run the Viceroy's Council or who should be, like, in charge of the army. Or well, it wasn't even any ego thing. The basic idea was the subordination of the military to the civilian government. Anyway, so he resigned. The problem is because he resigned and I think the government, you know, the Tory government fell a few days later. I think he was out of the political scene for a good 10 years, you know, until the outbreak of the Great War. Whereas Kitchener, you know, he was, well, he continued pretty strongly. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, he was even in contention for the post of Viceroy, but um, by that time, I think the system wasn't really working that well, so he didn't get that either.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, he was drowned at sea in 1916. So. That's evident.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. You have a chapter in the book about, and we've talked about this just a little bit about uh, Curzon and the Indian intelligentsia. I didn't know there was an Indian intelligentsia. Uh, but again, that's just bespeaks my, my own ignorance. Can you talk a little bit about how, I mean, public discourse in in um, in colonial India? I, 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 there must have been a lot of it. Uh, so, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. It's not really my area of uh, specialism because I have sure. many Indian languages. But yeah, I think, you know, and public discourse in British India, that was something that the British, in fact, tried to foster, tried to facilitate. Like, for instance, you had like the Indian National Congress, which is obviously still going strong as a yeah. political party, though they were outed in the polls, um, established in 1885 by Alan Hume. And he was like and he was part of the British government of India. The idea is to give these people a chance to talk about their issues, you know, and if you have any problems, you make a presentation with the government. And interesting, just the line that we were taught in schools as well, you know, in well, independent India. And you had a lot of informal associations, people, people's groups, and, you know, societies, special interest groups, and they're all talking, they're talking to the media, you had English language media, and in fact, the British, you know, they had a special sort of dossier that came out like every few days, it was a compilation of all the reports that had appeared in what used to be called the native media, the native newspaper report. So that talks a lot about the concerns Indians had at that point. And obviously these varied, you know, like depending on what kind of person they were, where they lived, their religion, their ethnicity, their caste. But that's a pretty lively discourse here, And all of these people actually you know, trying to get the attention of the government, of the local administrators, because, you know, they wanted their interests to be seen to first. And, um, you know, that was, you know, this was actually not seen as a bad thing. But, you know, when they got to work, for instance, in the case of the Indian National Congress, and I think that, People did tend to resent them, you know, some administrators. I mean, a resented them, you know, and a lot of the times, you know, these groups, you know, the Indians, the intelligentsia they tended to be very elitist. Remember, they were Anglicized, they were often educated in England mm-hmm. when they came back. So a lot of people did feel that they weren't really representative of, you know, the real Indian, the person, the farmer who lived in the village and who, you know, who didn't really, well, he wouldn't have spoken English, he wouldn't have come out and started speaking to you know, and lobbying the local government. And the idea was that I think there's a certain feeling among the British that these Indians were speaking or speaking only for themselves. So in that sense, they weren't really encouraged. But, yeah, the discourse was there.
0: Mm-hmm. And- I guess my, you've sort of answered the question, but I want to know uh, how receptive – the administration was the the English administration, the viceroyalty, and especially Curzon to uh, this kind of remonstration or this kind of uh, this kind of input from uh, you know I don't know if you can talk about Indian civil society, but from as they would have said the natives.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's very really interesting the word "natives" because you know i think it's uh in modern like um well well in modern post-colonial theory, you wouldn't use the word natives at all because it's seen as being patronizing but i think it's not because i think it was just a way of distinguishing the people who were ethnically indian you know mm-hmm. and opposed to the people who were british but worked in india and those were the people who would actually have been called indian civilians at that point you know yeah. Yeah if you were native, then it just meant you were ethnically Indian. It didn't mean anything more or anything less. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the point is that, you know, Kersen, for instance, I think there's uh, one of the local political leaders in Western India. He wrote a long, like, paper on the famine in India, and in the 1903 famine, R.C. And he forwards it to Curzon. Curzon sat there, and he wrote a revertal you know so the point is he took the effort to write a rebuttal but the problem is that was just a rebuttal you know he didn't really go out and engage so when he comes and negates all these points you know even though he's paid the attention he he's done the groundwork you know he's been very thorough but you know the person he's writing to he doesn't really feel good about it because he just feels okay i've been shouted down i've been argued down you know i think the thing is he made effort but you know he just didn't do it in the right way his outreach didn't wasn't effective because maybe it, I don't know lack compassion.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So uh, how you already uh, just very briefly mentioned this uh, Curzon uh, after he resigns, I guess the second time. Um, he he goes into he. What happens to him then?
1: Well, after he resigned, um, he came back, and then I think he was the vice chancellor of Oxford. I think around uh, nineteen oh seven or nineteen oh eight. And then he comes back, you know, as the Prime Minister, and after the Great War, he actually, you know, the Curzon Line in Poland, that's one of the demarcation lines. Oh, you are
0: know, right. I had not, <laughs> I did not make that connection at all. I did not make that connection at all. I, that's amazing. Yeah, you're right. The Curzon Line. Thank you very much for that. I always wondered where that came from. <laughs> that's kind of amazing. That's kind of, I guess that's why I knew the name, the Curzon Line. That's amazing. So, um,
1: yeah, and then he kept on interfering in Indian affairs. Obviously, you know, like every time a new proposal with regard to the government of India was announced, he would have to have his say. And you know, succeeding vice did not like it at all because he would keep writing to them. And later on, he was the contender for the prime ministership, but they, Stanley Baldwin, was appointed instead because you know they felt a the cousin was too out of touch. You know, he was too old worldly. So that's what that was. Pretty much the end of political career in 1923.
0: Mm-hmm. Did he live to see independence, or did, was he dead? How, how long did he live? How long? How long did he live? Did
1: oh, I think he, he died in 1925.
0: Oh, okay. Then never mind <laughs> yes. that. I have a question about that. Um, So let's broaden the discussion a little bit. Um, I, I got the impression from reading your book that uh, you were, in a, in a subtle and intelligent way, making the case that Um, there was a lot of uh, good that was done by the British in India. And that needs to be recognized. And in fact, people have uh, hustled not to recognize it. And there's been a kind of herd mentality. Everybody is piling on here to say how horrible the, um, the, uh, the, the British were. So could you talk a little bit about the background to that debate? Is it an ongoing debate among historians in colonialism? Because it's just I would be I would be interested in hearing about it, and I think the listeners would as well.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, yeah, that's pretty much a given, you know, that, um, you know, you just grew up hearing that everything the British did was terrible, and that's the official line. And then you hear about things like the railways. So it's always a very grudging, a very backhanded compliment, such as, okay, the British started up railways in India, but they only did it to be able to transport soldiers. Now, that's not strictly the case because you're not, the, the place wasn't in a state of war. You know, you're not always transporting soldiers from point A to point B. And um, the thing is that you know, if you talk to a lot of elderly people like, you know, well people who are actually 80 or 90 or more now and they say stuff like, okay, you know, the British were really good. And, you know, during British rule, the streets were washed with soap and water every Sunday. And there was no corruption. And then they look at all these buildings in Bombay. And then they say, Oh, we can't build anything like that. I mean, you, you even have like people in their fifties and sixties saying that. And I think, yeah, I did want to make a case for empire. Yes. Because I think it wasn't all bad. I mean, you know, look, I mean, this is the post colonial society. I mean, we have a colonial legacy in South Asia, whether we like it or not. And I think it's definitely not bad because you've got parliamentary democracy. I mean, you've got English and you've got these sort of old world values, you know, fair play, you know, doing the right thing, the sense of honor. And I think that's the intangibles that matter most. And got a lot of good literature out of them. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to make a case for empire. Yes, because as I said, you know, look, in the 1700s, you know, there was a you had a lot of like really corrupt East India company servants. You know, you know these were people who would come out, they would do trading on the side, they'd want to make money, they're fairly unscrupulous. But once, you know, like regulating acts were passed, and, you know, so by the 1800s, you know, the administration, I think, settled down. and. You know, there's a lot of genuine effort to do something good. I mean, the Indian Civil Service, it's always been one of the most incorruptible systems in the world. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to highlight that, yes.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was reading Gandhi in an odd connection, Gandhi's writings and letters, and I didn't know until I read them how much, at least later in his life, he hated Western civilization. I mean, especially the English, and especially English education. He really hated it in a way that, you know, you think of Gandhi as a very sort of loving, forgiving person, but he gets out the acid pen when it when he starts talking about the English and about English education and these other things. It was quite remarkable.
1: Which was I mean if you look at his autobiography, you know, he is actually not very condemnatory kind of, of it in you know in the early pages of his autobiography. Yeah. He's not really making a case for being anti English and I think maybe his political stance hardened over time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is probably a necessity for him you know in order to i guess
0: so. yeah, sure it's just that i mean we the only reason I mentioned this is we had been given this image of Gandhi as a certain kind of person of uh, ben Kingsley. and 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 then you read his writings about this and it 's really very condemnatory and uh, uh yeah i mean there, it it was just interesting for me to see. How he had evolved in that way. I, I didn't know anything about that. So what would you say, you know, is 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 this, uh, is there a debate going on in the historiography now about the value of the, of the, the imperial experience? Or is it, pre- are people working on really narrow things? And you know what?
1: Good night. I uh, think that this uh, this whole rabid anti-imperialism thing that's kind of receded, you know, so you had to have a lot of people who are standing up and saying that you do need to re-examine empire and there's a lot more interest in the empire for itself, you know, not just for its legacy, not just for, you know, the effect it had on the colonized, but in the effect it had in terms of mobility, migration, you know, and that I think was one of the most positive things about empire. I mean, you've got, let's say, South Asians all over the world now. Oh, yeah. But, through the empire, you know, like you got some people moving as laborers, you got some people moving, I don't know, as nannies, you got people moving as professionals. I mean, Gandhi moved as a lawyer from Bombay South Africa. So you got, you got this whole network that came into being because the empire existed. And it's not just like, you know, an English speaking network. You got networks that are facilitated in other cultural systems as well. And, you know, maybe there were, you know, the British empire covered like, I don't know, a quarter of the globe. It was pretty easy to move. And I think that's something that's being recognized, you know, and maybe even being celebrated. So, yeah.
0: I, I definitely take your point about, uh, uh, South Asians, uh, spreading all over the globe more than before, because I know that even in my teaching and, you know, I teach in rural Massachusetts, we have a lot of South Asians, really a lot. <laughs> even when I was in Iowa, which is even more rural, that's in the middle of the United States. We had a lot of South Asians and, uh, and, you know, we welcome them very much. Thank you for coming. <laughs> we think it's great. Um, so let, let me ask a, a final question before I let you go about Curzon. Um, how is he n- not remembered by historians uh, and not remembered by the public? I doubt he's remembered at all by the public. But how is he memorialized? Is there a statue to Curzon somewhere? Or is there a building named after him? Or there's, is there, does, does he exist in the pantheon any place?
1: Well, that's very interesting. There is actually, you know, there's the Victoria Memorial in Kolkata. Well, it used to be called Calcutta, which is actually something that Curzon built to commemorate like Queen Victoria. In the grounds, there's a statue of Curzon. Then before independence, the statue of Curzon was at the front of the monument. Now it's been moved to the back of the <laughs> <laughs> That's very
0: funny. It's still there. That's very it's funny. It's still
1: there. <laughs> you can see it, you know, and the is like it's actually a museum now. You know, it's run by... I guess the the local authorities. So yeah, I mean there is no backlash in that sense. You know, there's been no efforts to eradicate these things, and the statue is also pretty well maintained.
0: Uh-huh.
1: That's, so that's yes, good. and in Britain, and in Hall, obviously that's the Curzon family home out here in Derbyshire, oh, oh. which is obviously run by you know the National Trust. Um, in fact, the movie The Duchess that was shot there in parts.
0: Oh, but um, there's nothing like like Curzon's pillar or anything like that. There's no you know.
1: Kedleston was always a curzon family home. Okay. So it's like, you know, um, so it's a collaborative thing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there, 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 there's a statue in Kolkata, yes. And yeah, there is obviously, well, the family chapel, but that's, I think, on the grounds of Kedleston Hall. And mm-hmm. you know, we've but that's it, yeah.
0: Was Curzon mentioned in your uh, textbooks in high school?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, as a um, usually negative person who
0: partitioned in Bengal. Yeah, right, Partitioned Bengal, that's right. Okay, well, uh, Dora, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for writing the book. It's been fascinating for me. I learned a huge amount, obviously, as you can hear from my many quite ignorant questions. You really brought me up to speed. Um, let me close this interview with our traditional final question. I think what you know is our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: But um, right now, I'm actually looking at how the British in South Asia and in Southeast Asia, how they engage with other colonial powers. So actually, you're looking at the relationship between one colonial power and other colonial will powers. Like, you know, for instance, the Portuguese they held go up to the nine, 1961. There, there were French enclaves in South India. You know, there were there were the Dutch in well, in, in the Dutch East Indies, the point is that the British had to engage with all these people, you know, the British government of India, the British government in London, the governments of the state settlements, you know. And I think that's something that hasn't been focused on, because then you had a lot of issues that these weren't just the big geopolitical, bilateral relations sort of issues, you know, that the British had with the Russians and the Northwest Frontier. The smaller things like how do you control the movement of people? How do you catch people who absconded across either border? Things like taxes, things like revenues, you know and trading, and I found it very interesting, because, and remember the British were by the 1850s in a position of primacy, so they tended to be very, you know, well, patronizing towards these other people, like
0: Portuguese,
1: you know, they wouldn't even bother to visit. The French, they were suspicious because they thought the French, okay, they got into China, they might try and, like, sneak into India, oh boy. and you know, so that's what I'm looking at right now, and I'm hoping to get the research done by the end of the year, and, you know, the press are interested in the sound of the book so i'm hoping to you know we'll get the book done like at some point over the next two years yeah, well, that yeah. Sounds, <laughs> it sounds
0: fascinating to me and uh, when you get it done we'll have you back on the show obviously but for now let me say thank you very much for being on new books in history today let me tell all the people that have been listening to this interview we've been talking to dara and jari about her book curzon's india networks of colonial governments 1899 to 1905 thank you dara
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Absolutely. And everybody who listens to this podcast, thanks very much for listening. And I hope that you tune in next week.